0: Well, good morning, my name is Chad Donahoe, one of the pastors here at Grace, and we will continue in 1 John chapter 5 this morning, 1 John chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me pray for our time in the word together. Lord, we give you thanks for this time of worship. You are worthy of our praise. And I do pray that as we turn our hearts to your scriptures, that you would encourage us and convict us and challenge us where we need. Would you focus our hearts and our minds on your glory in this time together? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So in our passage this morning, John uses the phrase, born of God, three times. This is John's phrase for being born again. So when you hear the label born again, as in born again Christian, What comes to your mind? Born-again Christian. Label means many things to many people in our culture. But oftentimes, it's a negative connotation. As I listen to various uh, cultural uh, media or watch sitcoms, movies, oftentimes, the label born-again is negative and misunderstood as a type of person. In fact, I Googled recently out of curiosity, I Googled my go-to website of kind of the cultural boots-on-the-ground definition. And here's the first definition of born-again Christian that popped up. Someone who rebels against their upbringing and for so much that they become a jerk, drug addict, alcoholic, or possibly worse. But in later life, they become terrified of the inevitable end and go back to a sober, penitent, and pious lifestyle. Such a person is also terrified of the possibility of hell as may be dictated in a religious upbringing, such a person then, in order to cancel out all fear of death and possibility of hell, will take out a hell insurance policy at the local fire and brimstone church by paying out his unquestioning obedience to dogma and giving his soul to usually a white and conservative Jesus in return for a place in eternal heaven. How does that hit you? If your reaction is, that's not fair and that's not right, that's correct. But this caricature should grieve our hearts because it's a misrepresentation of a glorious truth in the Scriptures. And it's this. So what what does the Bible mean when it speaks of being born again or born of God? Well, if we recall, back in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, there was this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a teacher of the day, most likely um, was flawless or attempted to be as flawless in his application of the law. But Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus essentially says, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. How can someone be born again from his mother's womb? Jesus corrects him and says, This is a spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit of God. So one who is born again, it's not a type of Christian or a movement within Christianity. It is Christianity. To be born again means that God has opened our eyes to the need of repentance and faith. On one hand, repentance from sin against a holy God, turning from that, but in faith, trusting and clinging to Christ as our only hope for the sinner. So we could say it this way, Ephesians 2 gives us a good summary of what it means to be born again, that we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ. And just as we did not bring about our physical birth, so we do not bring about our spiritual birth. This is a gift of God by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so this morning in our passage, John lays out essentially three pieces of proof that one has been born again. And it's the same things that John has been emphasizing over and over throughout his letter. So what's the proof that we've been born again? Or we could say it this way. What's the fruit of having been born by God through the Holy Spirit? It's belief. It's belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God, the only Savior, Okay, it's obedience to God's commands, and it's love, love for God and for one another. And so belief, obedience, and love, these are the marks of new birth. But John doesn't treat these three pieces independently, but he blends all three of these fruits together, belief, obedience, and love. Or if I can use another picture, uh, and this is fresh in my mind as I, you know, a few weeks ago just took down our Christmas tree so uh, the, uh, the fruit of belief, obedience, and love have to be tethered together. So in my Christmas tree, I use three strands of lights. But in order for this to uh, fill out the Christmas tree, for them to light up, they have to be linked and tethered together. And that is what makes it beautiful. And this is the Christian life, belief, obedience, and love. They must all work together. And what John wants us to do is examine our life. Is the fruit there? Do we really believe in Jesus, the only hope? Are we obedient to the scriptures? Do we seek to love God and others? And so John keeps coming back to these over and over because John wants us to have assurance eternal life. He wants us to have assurance that we know God. He wants us to have assurance that we have truly been born again. And so, belief, obedience, love, this is the proof. And the way these work together leads to a beautiful life. But belief, obedience, and love, they don't always come easy, do they? Our sin often gets in the way and especially we live in a real world with all of its temptations and troubles. And so we will struggle at times. We will struggle with belief, especially when life gets hard. God, are you real? Are you good? Is Christianity the real deal? Because my life uh, is a mess right now. Can I believe? Obedience. God, you say this in your scriptures, but the world looks so good over here and I wanna go in that direction. Love, sometimes it's just hard to love. Sometimes we love according to the standards of the world, which ain't pretty. I used ain't on purpose, right? The troubles and temptations of the world can be overwhelming. But there's this great promise embedded in our scripture, and it's this, that everyone who has been born of God overcomes world. So my sermon outline is fairly simple. I want to take up the fruit of what it means to be born of God, born again, which is belief, obedience, and love, and end essentially with what does it mean for the Christian to overcome the world. So if you're thinking, well, Chad, we've been down this road before. We've already talked about belief, obedience, and love lots of times. Uh, Your beef is not with me Because John did not end his epistle in chapter 4. He went on to chapter 5, and that's where we are. And in chapter 5, John hammers again belief, obedience, and love. And so, um, if this is the inspired word of God, I trust that we need it again. right? But also, I would say, um, what we'll find is John offers a few nuances that we'll consider. Namely, that God's commandments are not burdensome and that those that are born of God have overcome the world. So with that, first, let's take up the fruit of love of God. So the fruit, one of the fruits of being born of God is a new disposition of the heart to love. And John uses love five times in these verses. Uh, verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So one of the ways to understand this passage is to see love as the center or the anchor of it. John says the proof of love, the proof that you've been born again, is that you love the Father and you love his children, the siblings, so to speak, of the faith. And the church is actually a testimony to us and to the world of the doctrine of rebirth, of the power of God to unite a diverse group of people, if you think about it. Represented this morning, we have every temperament and every personality. Most likely, we wouldn't have hung out in high school. We would have formed cliques. The cliques may not have liked each other. We might have TP'd each other's houses, right? But God has done an amazing thing in uniting us together. We have this in common. We are in Christ and born of the same Father. And think about what kind of love this passage is talking about this is agape love right this is selfless sacrificial unconditional love this is john 3:16 love for god so loved us that he gave his only son to sacrifice for us so that we would not perish right again this love is selfless sacrificial unconditional and agape love is always practical And active. I like how uh, John writes in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, kind of let's put our money where our mouth is. And as I was uh, reflecting on agape love and the way it's always practical and active, I was drawn back to a book I read uh, years ago called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria. Butterfield, And in this book, um, Rosaria, I'll call her by her first name, though I don't know her. Rosaria writes of her journey to faith in Christ. And I was struck by the way a particular church loved her, into the doors of the church and then loved her as a church. So what I want to do, and this will take, I think, four to five minutes, is skim read about 23 pages Just little nuggets out of pages. Um, And I think it'll flow fairly seamlessly, though I'll skip paragraphs at a time. So here we go. She writes this. When I was 28 years old, I boldly declared myself lesbian. I was at the finish of a PhD in English literature and cultural studies. I was a teaching associate in one of the first and strongest women's study department in the nation. I was being recruited by universities to take on faculty and administrative roles in advancing radical leftist ideologies. I genuinely believed that I was helping to make the world a better place. At the age of 36, I was one of the few tenured women at a large research university, a rising administrator, and a community activist. I'd become one of the tenured radicals, in quotes. By all standards, I had made it. After I published in the local newspaper, a critique of the Promise Keepers for their gender politics. If you're not familiar with Promise Keepers, it was a movement to challenge and encourage men uh, towards God and, and loving their families uh, as, as Christian men. Okay. So after she published this uh, critique in the paper, she writes, I received a batch of mail, hate mail and fan mail. I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith. It was a kind and inquiring letter. He didn't argue with my article. He asked me to explain and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. So it sat on my desk and haunted me. She says, Pastor Kin's letter sat on my desk for a whole week. I threw it away a few times, but always found myself digging through the department's recycling bin to reclaim it at the day's end. It was the kindest letter of opposition I'd ever received. After a week, I called. We had a nice chat on the phone, and Pastor Ken invited me to dinner at his house. Pastor Ken also said that if I was afraid to come to some stranger's home, that he and his wife would meet me at a restaurant. I was excited to meet a real born-again Christian and find out why he believed such silly ideas. I remember in great detail the first meeting with Ken and his wife, Flo. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember how, I, how relieved I was when I learned that Flo made a vegetarian stir-fry for supper. I throw that in just to, just to highlight um, the ways in which they met her where she was at. Okay. Even though, obviously, these Christians and I were very different, they seemed to know that I wasn't just a blank slate that I had values and opinions too, and they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. The most memorable part of the meal was Kin's prayer before the meal. It was not a pretentious prayer uttered for a heathen at the table over here. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at that time that God was dead and that if he was ever alive... The fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believe that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional, and wise. She goes on to talk about the pastor, but let's insert all of us into this. He was a good listener, a balanced interpreter. These people simply didn't fit the stereotype, and I simply didn't know what to do with this. Ken and Flo invited the stranger in not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. We talked about our personal truth and what made us tick. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion, I left their table needing to know a number of things. Does God exist? If God does exist. What does he expect from me? How do I communicate with him? How do I know who he is and what he wants? Before I ever set foot in church, I spent two years. Did you catch that two years? Meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, studying scripture and my heart. I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. They met my friends, came to my dinner party, saw me function in my real life. They made themselves safe enough for me to do this. And this is the day that she first attended their church. I emerged from the bed of my lover, and an hour later was sitting in a pew in the Syracuse RP Church. I share this detail with you not to be lurid, but merely to make the point that you never know the terrain someone else has walked to come worship the Lord. Even though I felt like a freak in that church, I was drawn to keep going back. That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. My journey was messy and difficult. I asked them vulnerable and real questions and they answered me and loved me anyway. I have walked this journey with help. I still walk this journey with help. I'm struck as I read that with this church's commitment to agape love, commitment to patience, recognizing it takes prayer. And she mentions in the book, this, this church had been praying for the university for years, right? It takes prayer. It takes being present. It takes meeting people where they are takes waiting on god and it's a profound thought responsibility that the church is calling is to love people into the doors but to recognize that our messiness doesn't stay out there we bring it in with us and we're called to really love one another acknowledging that we are a mess but god is at work and so it's really a call for us to be committed to one another and to be patient as God is at work in our lives. The fruit of love, agape love. Let's move to the next point. Uh, Let's turn our attention to the fruit of obedience. So the fruit of being born again, or the the other fruit of being born again, is the disposition of the heart towards the commandments. In verse 2 and 3, love is connected to obedience. In verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So John says, essentially, what's the proof that we love God? We obey and keep his commandments. So we cannot think of love of God as just an emotional feeling or experience. It's actually commitment And what John is doing here is essentially echoing Jesus when Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep, you will obey what I command. And then John throws this in at the end, and his commandments are not burdensome. The truth is, for those that have not come to faith in Christ, the commands are burdensome. In fact, Romans 8 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot but for the christian the commandments of god are not burdensome and why it's because they're rooted in the very character of god and they're not random or logical that was illogical not random or illogical but they're meant for our good it doesn't mean that they're easy but that they're not crushing or oppressive. Rather, they're meant to bring freedom and joy and rest as we seek obedience. It's likely here that John has in mind the contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus went toe-to-toe with the scribes and Pharisees on multiple occasions. And on one, it was in Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowd and to the disciples, the scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. See, what the Pharisees would do is add commands on top of the scriptures. But they were not life-giving. They were burdensome. And they missed the heart of the law. So as I think of the law, to me, I think of it as a funnel. We have all the commandments throughout the scriptures, top of the funnel, and then we could narrow down. summary, would be the Ten Commandments. And then to summarize that further, the Ten Commandments are all about love. Love of God, the first four, love of man, or or love of neighbor, the last six. So what the law, the heart of the law is really love, and that's what the Pharisees missed. But Jesus in Matthew 11 says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, come to me, rest, learn from me. And if we want to see the character of God, we see it clearly in Jesus. We look at Jesus and what do we find? We find that Jesus himself took the burden of the, law. the scriptures are clear that due to the severity of a sin against God, the punishment is death. It's the shedding of blood. And Jesus, though he did not sin, took that on himself on the cross. Went to the cross for us so that our sin would be transferred to him. His righteousness transferred to us. And so, if we find the commandments of God burdensome, we really need to ask the question why? Do we obey because we're afraid not to? I like what Tim Keller says here. He says if people obey God, God's commands because they fear they will be rejected or punished or have God's love withdrawn if they do not obey, then their obedience is very burdensome indeed. The Christian life under this motivation becomes performance-centered rather than acceptance-centered. Acceptance-centered obedience comes from knowing that we have already been accepted, meaning Jesus took it all, his finished work. We are accepted in Christ. Keller goes on to say, Not obeying to be accepted, it is grace-motivated rather than fear-motivated. We obey because God loves us, not to get him to love us. We seek to please him and walk in his commands out of gratitude for what he has done, not out of fear of what he might do to us. Again, to summarize that, it's just obedience. Is it motivated in our lives by gratitude for God or out of fear? Or maybe this way, do we find God's commands burdensome Because we're not convinced that his way will lead to true happiness and pleasure. This reminds me of, uh, for me, it was a profound moment uh, in one of my seminary classes. Uh, Sitting there at the very beginning of the class, the professor, rather than beginning a lecture, began by talking about what a wonderful weekend he had with his wife. They had a little getaway to a cabin, no kids, and he just talked about how they enjoyed an intimate time together. And he kind of went on and on. Not inappropriate, but awkward. I was like looking around like, wow, he's really going there. And at one time I was like, professor, dude, TMI, in your British accent. Um, but then he said this. He said, you know the problem with young people today is they do not understand that the law is good. I'm like, oh, okay, that was worth it. Because what hit me right there, is the reality in our lives. That when we seek to go our own way, we have failed to recognize that the law is good because of the character of God who is good. It's following God is what leads to true happiness and pleasure and joy. And the moment that we deviate towards any sin, it is a failure of recognition of the goodness and the glory of God. We've talked about the fruit of love, fruit of obedience. So let's turn lastly to consider the fruit of belief or faith. Uh, John uses that. We could use those interchangeably. Okay. It says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then down in verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So what John is saying that if we have belief or faith that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, meaning he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, that is proof that we have been born of God if we truly hold to that. And he says... Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Three times he uses that phrase, overcoming the world. So what does John mean when he talks about overcoming the world? First, as we consider the world, it's referring to sinful humanity as it, as it stands opposed to God and his commandments. And what's the danger of the world? John already spoke of the world in chapter two, when he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions is not from the father, but is from the world. So the danger of the world is that its power and an influence would draw our hearts away from God and the things of God towards the world and the things of the world. It's the attractions, it's the temptations that play to the desire of our flesh and our eyes. And, And John names the pride and possessions. It's making the world and the things of the world our ultimate treasures. And the danger is how constant and even subtle this can be. So when I think about my wife and my family, for instance, I don't really worry that any of us are going to run off and join a satanic cult. It's not really my fear. My fear is the constant drip of the culture in our lives, right? It's the drip, 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 pride, possessions, money, sex, comfort, ambition, fame, success. The list goes on and on on. It's what the world offers as the good life. But then, there's Jesus's words. Who's blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers." But John gives us hope. The reality is the world can be overbearing, but John gives us hope. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And then John asks a question. Who is it that overcomes? And then he answers this question. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So with this, what's our response? It is to rest and to resist. It's both. On one hand, we rest We rest in the finished work of Christ. He is our hope. He has conquered. He has overcome. He conquered sin and Satan and death on the cross. In John 16, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He has already crushed the head of the serpent. He has overcome the world. And so if we have been born of God, this is a supernatural event. We have been taken out of the sphere of the world and into the family of God. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God because of Christ. And so, on one hand, we rest, but on the other hand, we resist. We resist conformity to the world. We resist the constant drip of the culture in our lives, and we pay attention. Where are the attractions and the temptations of the world? What are are we already flirting with? And what do we need to do about it? I'm going to end with something. I'm going to give you some cheese here, okay? So the winner of the Super Bowl gets the Lombardi Trophy. And last year, if you remember the chant, you have to fight for your right to Lombardi. So if all things go well, according to God's purpose, the Chiefs will win tonight, and, um, and we will take home the Lombardi trophy. And we might hear that phrase again, you got to fight for your right to Lombardi. But in our minds, I want it to be this. And I told you it was cheesy. I warned you. Here it is. got to fight for your light. I can't even say it. Straight face. <laughs> to shine brightly. you got to fight for your light to shine brightly. Here's what I mean. The light shines in the darkness. This is Jesus. And the darkness has not overcome it. And in our lives, it's back to the analogy of the Christmas tree. It's three strands together in our lives. It is our belief in Jesus Christ as our only hope. It is obedience to the scriptures, no matter how we feel about it, because we recognize that God is good and his character is good. And it is love. It is get your hands dirty, love. It is patience and commitment to one another. That's what the scriptures call us to. And with that, let me pray for us. So Father, we do, uh, we give you thanks for the work of the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks for our new birth. And help us then out of that to bear the fruit in the world. Help us to love Help us to love you, Lord. Help us to love others sacrificially. Help us to be committed and to be patient. I pray for our obedience, that we would recognize that the law is good, that your character is good. And even those those sins that are dripping, that are sneaking up on us, I pray that we would be quick to confess them, recognize them for what they are, a deviation of your good character. And I pray for our belief that we would cling to Christ as our only hope. And with that, Father, I pray for the Harvits as Shelley's dad has passed away. I pray that they would cling to you, that you would bring comfort, surround them with your love and your care, that they would know your grace in this time. And Lord, you know the needs of our church, the suffering, the struggles, the trials, the pressures, the persecutions. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that we would not suffer alone, but that we would bear one another's burdens. And so thank you that you call us together um, to grieve together and to work together. But also we pray that, uh, and we give you thanks that we're called to celebrate together. And so Lord, I pray for Ryan Randolph in this upcoming hour, that this would be a glorious time of him recognizing, our church recognizing your goodness. So thank you for the gift to our church that you give us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. Now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, and amen.